Welcome to Femtech Focus with Dr. Brittany Barreto, exploring the past, present, and future of women's health and wellness. Welcome to the Femtech Focus podcast, where we have meaningful and provocative conversations with femtech experts. These academics, doctors, and innovators tell us about the past, present, and future of women's health and wellness. I'm your host, Dr. Brittany Barreto, and today's episode is brought to you by Witham. Witham is a forward-thinking, technology-driven advisory and accounting firm committed to helping companies be more profitable, efficient, and productive in today's complex business environment. Witham's dedicated Femtech team is proud to partner with members of the Femtech community. Get to know their team at witham.com backslash femtech. Before I introduce our guest, I want to tell you about our upcoming conference in partnership with the Femtechnology Summit. The Femtechnology Summit is taking place on June 1st and 2nd, and it's a very special event because it's a hybrid event. That means virtual and in-person. The speakers are all virtual, and Femtech Focus is hosting a North American watch party in Raleigh, North Carolina, part of RTP, Research Triangle Park. Check it out. Give it a Google. You'll learn a lot about where I currently live and all of the awesome things that are going on in this area. Now, let me break this down for you how this works. If you'd like to watch and listen to these rock star Femtech speakers that Femtechnology Summit organized, you can watch them technically from anywhere in the world for free. You can register for that at femtechnology.org. But if you'd like to watch these speakers with 200 plus other Femtech founders, investors, enthusiasts in person in Raleigh, North Carolina, paired with additional panels, networking, dinners, activities, then you need to go to femtechfocus.org and buy a watch party ticket. Tickets are only $45 or $20 if you're a student. I'm very big on being accessible to everyone. This ticket covers your attendance to watch the virtual summit together, the additional activities and networking, as well as breakfast and dinners. If you're traveling into Raleigh from out of town, we're helping organize affordable lodging in Airbnbs with other attendees. So once again, if you want to watch the speakers from anywhere in the world for free, register at femtechnology.org. If you'd like to join me and hundreds of other attendees in person to watch the speakers and have a femtastic adventure, then buy a ticket at femtechfocus.org and plan your trip for Raleigh, North Carolina, June 1st and 2nd. And of course, I want to be very good to our podcast listeners, so use promo code PODCAST at checkout for 20% off your ticket. That's promo code PODCAST at femtechfocus.org for your summit tickets, 20% off. See you there. Alrighty, Fem fans. In today's episode, I interview Melissa Kramer, the CEO and founder of Live UTI Free. As a women's health advocate, Melissa worked closely with researchers, clinicians, and members of the public to ensure the patient perspective is acknowledged, particularly in the area of recurrent urinary tract infections, the second most common infection in adults globally. In 2017, she founded Live UTI Free, a patient advocacy and research organization with a highly engaged community. 
7 million females experience a UTI every year in the United States, with about 35% of them having another UTI within six months. Many of these reoccurring infections may be caused by an underlying bladder infection that goes undiagnosed and ineffectively treated. My favorite resource that they offer is a Take It to Your Doctor and Patient Guide resources. These are documents that you can read, print out, and bring with you to your physician. They help empower you to speak to your physician about what you believe you're experiencing. These resources and more can be found at liveutifree.com. Enjoy the episode. Hey, Melissa. Welcome to the show. Hi, Brittany. Thanks for having me. I'm looking forward to our conversation. Yeah, it's very exciting to have you. Are you uh, preparing for St. Patrick's Day in your green there? <laughs> I didn't even realize that it's cold right now, so I'm wearing a warm sweater. Where are you calling in from today? From Slovenia. Slovenia. What is the temperature mm-hmm. there? It's probably just around zero Celsius. Wow. Um, is that where you normally live? Yeah, I've been here since the start of the pandemic, actually. Okay. All right. So about two years. Yeah. Well, I'm excited to learn more about your background and your trajectory and um, all that you're doing. Our listeners love to learn a little bit more about the personal background of our guests before we dive into our topic of the day, which is UTIs. And we're going to talk about that today. But tell us first, Melissa, more about you. Where are you from? What did you, you know, your early career stuff? And then how did you get into founding Live UTI Free? Mm-hmm. Well, I'm Australian, as you can probably tell by my accent. And before I left Australia, I actually had a couple of my own companies there in the fashion and retail space. Oh. But in 2012, I decided to sell my company and move to Europe. And I ended up living in Berlin for a few years where I kind of fell into the startup scene and, and got into tech a little bit. And I started mentoring for a bunch of accelerator programs. And then I met my current partner and we decided to sell everything we owned and kind of go on the road. And we were location independent for the next five or six years. Until the pandemic, actually, that was the first time we stopped. And we've been in one place for two years, which has been a big change. But during that time, I was actually experiencing some women's health issues of my own, which kind of led to my moving into the femtech space. And I launched my current company in 2017 while I was still on the road. Wow. Just really quickly, tell us, what are your like top three favorite places? <laughs> it's the most difficult question to answer, and I always say it really depends on what for. Like yeah. My favorite beaches might be in Greece, and my favorite food maybe Indonesia or India. Mm-hmm. We've seen so many amazing places, and all for different mm-hmm. reasons, and we've done some great work in social business in a lot of different countries in those years too. So I couldn't even say. I love it. I love it so much. I always like to tell people my favorite uh, country in Europe is actually Slovakia. Like the people were just so nice. It was so beautiful. And the tap water tasted like the most (laughs) freshest water I've ever had in my life. I couldn't believe that was coming out of a sink. Um, Mm -hmm. Incredible, incredible country. 
Well, what is Live UTI Free? Sounds a lot different than uh, a retail fashion startup. So (laughs) what is Live UTI Free? A little bit of a change. Well, (laughs) it's a a global patient research and advocacy platform on the topics of recurrent and chronic UTI. And we're really a user-centric organization, which means that every resource we create and every piece of content we make or project we facilitate, it all comes from what our community tells us tells us that they need. Mm. And so we ask questions of our community every step that we take. And then we try to be a conduit of information between patients and researchers to try to make improvement in the space. When did you start it? 2017. And that was about a year after I recovered from my own experience of chronic UTI. Yeah. So is that why you started this is because you finally found a solution and were upset about how long it probably took you to find your solution? It was less that I found a solution and more that I found it so difficult while I was experiencing Mm. it. So it was almost five years for me where it started out very similar to how a lot of people describe the experience where I had a single UTI, the antibiotic seemed to work. And then a couple of months later, I got another one. But then over time, the space between the UTIs got shorter and shorter until eventually I had symptoms on a daily basis. So I was Mm. basically never symptom free. And I'd seen doctors in multiple countries at this point, and none of them could offer me a solution. And I got a lot of the same things that other women get where they said it was just the way that I was or it was just my plumbing which to me made no sense because one day I was fine and the next day I wasn't fine yet somehow it was still my fault and mm. I hear that a lot from people and I wanted to make it easier for other women to find information online that was more than the superficial information that you usually see and might actually lead to a solution yeah it sounds like um you know, you are kind of an adult in this started. I always think about people who have chronic UTIs were like born with it, but you're mm-hmm. saying you were like in adulthood and it started. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I'd had a single UTI about nine years before that. And then this occasion, it just never went away. It, co- yeah. it coincided with a really stressful time of my life. It was mm-hmm. around when I was selling my business and leaving Australia And then it just continued. I kept on thinking Mm. it would get better and it just didn't. And I wasn't getting the help I needed from anybody. So what are some of the symptoms of a UTI, urinary tract infection? That's what we're talking about, right? So what are some of the symptoms when you said you had it like on a daily basis? What does that look like? Mm -hmm. There's, There's like a standard list of symptoms that you'll often see, which is maybe burning when you pee and sometimes cloudy or smelly urine. A lot of people say they get blood in the urine, but there's a, there's a, a whole range of symptoms that we hear from our community that are rarely documented. Things like referred pain to a particular foot or diaphragm pain, which is also probably referred or possibly a, like a symptom of something else entirely. But the symptoms are so varied and people can get a fever and chills. They can get nausea. In older people, it can be behavior change or symptoms like dementia or confusion, which is also a totally bigger issue that needs to be addressed in older people as well. Wow. Yeah, I remember I was watching an episode of Naked and Afraid because that's what I like to watch sometimes. Mm -hmm. And there was a woman on the show and she had severe back pain and she was like, my back, my back. And like, I thought, you know, and I think the viewers thought, oh, she like sprained it because she's living Mm -hmm. in the jungle or whatever. And eventually then she got a fever and the medics go out and they said, oh, you have a UTI. And it was like she didn't say my urine's, you know, it's burning. She just kept Mm -hmm. saying my back hurts, my back hurts. So it's kind of an example right there. 
Um, yeah. What's the difference between a UTI, recurring UTIs, and chronic UTIs? So first, I think a definition of what a UTI is is a good place to start. So that stands for urinary tract infection, and that can be an infection in any part of the urinary tract, which includes the urethra, the bladder, the ureters, and the kidneys. And an acute UTI is considered to be severe and sudden in onset, and it's usually treated by antibiotics, and then it goes away. Mm. But once you get to recurrence, that's defined as two episodes within six months or three and 12 months, Mm. that definition itself has problems too, though, because it really doesn't cover the kind of experience a lot of people have, which is when it gets to that chronic point and their symptoms just don't subside like that. So they might have 20 or 30 episodes in a year, or they might have episodes every single day for some people. So it's, it's just this issue of a lack of consensus of definitions, science that's emerging that Mm. we just don't know enough about yet. And clinicians that don't have the time to learn about it either. Yeah. And so what's the difference between recurring and chronic? Chronic is every day. Recurring is that the three in a year? It's more to do with the the way they think it happens. So even recurrent has two different theories about what it might be caused by. So Mm -hmm. the first is reinfection, which means that the infection is successfully eradicated and then later a new infection starts. Yeah, got it. And the second is persistent infection where it's not successfully treated, even if the symptoms subside, and then the same organisms or organism start to cause symptoms again. So yeah. it's the same infection and it just never really went away. And that's yeah. how people tend to refer to chronic. Got it, got it. And it's bacteria causing this infection, right? Usually it's the most common cause, but there is a small percentage of infections that can be caused by other things like fungal infection. There have been viruses found in the bladder and Mm -hmm. it is possible for a certain parasite to infect the bladder, but that doesn't happen in most places in the world. Mm -hmm. Is it a specific bacterium that's doing this? It could really be any, and I'm not sure if you're aware, but in the last decade, they actually discovered there's a urinary microbiome, so the bladder has its own healthy versus dysbiotic state. Of course it does. Yeah, (laughs) right, it seems obvious to people, because how could anything in the human body be sterile? It's all just so gross and slimy, but... The bladder has its own microbiome, and they're really just beginning to understand that, and that means that now we don't know necessarily what's good and what's bad. And if you can show up more things on a test, should they be treated or is that really part of what's healthy? And that just complicates things even more now. Yeah, because uh, first of all, the issue of prescribing antibiotics for a bacterial infection is that if they don't take all of it or they can become drug resistant. But you're also saying there's not only as there bad players in the urethra, but there's good players. And so the antibiotics are actually double whammy. They're also clearing mm-hmm. out the good stuff, too. So interesting. Why do I think urine is sterile? Is that like a ho- theory? Hocus pocus? I mean, not real? It definitely <laughs> was accepted as the truth uh-huh. until quite recently. And I was thinking, I don't know if this is a thing everywhere, but in Australia, peeing on jellyfish stings yeah. is definitely a thing. And so is peeing on wounds to clean it or to uh-huh. sterilize it. But turns out that's a really silly idea because... <laughs> All urine has bacteria in it. I mean, jellyfish things. I mean, who came up with that in the first place? But does it work? Now we have I've a good reason not to. I've yet to be stuck by a jellyfish or pee on myself 
for, to like help the pain. But have you ever done that? Has it actually helped you? I've definitely been stung by a jellyfish, but I did not pee on it. No, so I, <laughs> I can't. All right, verdict is out, listeners. Yeah. Report in. Did the urine on your jellyfish <laughs> thing help? <laughs> um, so, what is the current? Uh, standard of care for these different types of UTIs? I guess uh, if it's one-off, it's antibiotics, right? But what about the chronic? What do you do for that? It's really difficult because there's the guidelines in most countries really don't cater to that more chronic experience. Mm-hmm. So patients are still treated as though every episode of recurrence is an acute UTI. So they're given the short courses of antibiotics and then sent away and then they come back and they just have the same thing happen again. Mm. And one of the issues in this is UTI testing. So that test that we're also familiar with, the standard culture where you ship off your pee to a lab, then you get results, that was never designed for this purpose. And it is seriously inadequate and flawed. And that means the standard of care is bad too because people are getting misdiagnosed or underdiagnosed and giving the wrong type of treatment or no treatment at all based on a test that isn't fit for purpose. So the standard of care in general is just bad. Mm. But there are a handful of clinicians kind of specializing in this space and trying to do longer-term treatment or look at preventative measures. Though even with that happening, women still way too often just get told the normal things like wear cotton underwear or drink more water, wipe from front to back, stop having sex, stop feeling so anxious, don't think about your bladder so much. And all these things really point the blame at the patient Mm. and that's just not good enough from our perspective yeah no absolutely how many people are struggling with chronic utis that number is not really well documented the stats say that one in two females will experience uti in their lifetime Mm -hmm. and of those 44 percent will have a recurrence and with Mm. every recurrence the risk of another recurrence is higher so if you take that at face value at least a quarter of women into a phase of recurrence and given that it gets worse and worse you could imagine that quite a few people end up in that state where they're just not being addressed yeah and what what effect does a a chronic UTI have on someone's life you know like it because it kind of sounds like the doctors are dismissing it so therefore it makes you think like it's not that impactful in your life but Mm -hmm. I think it might so tell us about what how it does that's (laughs) that's part of the problem that patients don't feel listened to they feel dismissed and like their pain and their symptoms are not important especially if a test which is flawed says that they don't have a UTI. Mm. And even if they didn't have a UTI, why should they be sent away in that kind of pain? That's the part yeah. that doesn't make any sense to me. And we've been looking at that a lot about the impact on quality of life. And we found that recurrent UTI basically is associated with burden in all areas of life. So it impacts someone's ability to work, to maintain relationships, to have a healthy sex life. And it's expensive. And there's basically mm. no area of life that isn't impacted by this, which means it's basically impossible to adjust to. So when doctors tell patients they should stop thinking about their bladder so much or they should just stop being anxious about it, it's literally impossible. Do you think that this is like a a lack of education for physicians or like they just have a lack of solutions and when they don't have solutions, they say like, it's on you? Like, what's the problem here? Why? (laughs) It's, I think it's a problem that's reflected in a lot of areas of women's health. So we get feedback a lot from people in our community that are studying medicine. And they'll say they had a 15-minute lecture out of four years on urinary tract infection. And all they were told 
was that you just treat it with antibiotics. And often they're also told that women tend to be hysterical. And I'm amazed that this is even still a thing that you are taught to diagnose women as anxious when they actually have symptoms. And I can never get my head around that, (laughs) but that's part of the problem. Medical school curriculum doesn't cover this in any detail. And then most doctors don't specialize in this. There is no such thing as a specialty that should cover this Mm. area. And doctors don't have time to keep on educating themselves unless they truly have an interest in this space. Yeah, because most women just go to their primary care physician for this, right? It's not usually their OB-GYN or urogynecologist. Like, that's super specialized, Mm -hmm. right? Um, It is, but it's also, it can be a good option because, like, after the discovery of the urinary microbiome, they also discovered that there's an interconnection between the vaginal microbiome and the urinary microbiome. So it's probable that vaginal health has a role in this, which means a urogynecologist could be the perfect person to see, particularly because the symptoms aren't always easy to differentiate. So that means they might be able to help you get to the bottom of it. But otherwise, there's not really a specialty for it. Yeah. And let's remind our listeners, we have had, um, uh, you know, the founder of Eucora on, we've had other UTIs, but can you remind our listeners why this disproportionately affects females over males? I would say the jury is out on that. There's really no solid evidence about why. There's a lot of theories, like it's to do with female anatomy or genetics or other reasons, but there's no good substantial evidence to say why. But we do know that certain things do play into it. So vaginal health and hormones are definitely a factor. Mm -hmm. Most of the research around that topic has been done in the post-menopause phase of life which is a shame because so many people in our community reach out to say they experience symptoms at a certain time of their menstrual cycle. So we know something's going on there, but nobody has done the research yet. Research. We need more research. I was actually going to ask you next, like, is there uh, times in a woman's life that she's more high risk for this? Is it puberty, pregnancy, menses, menopause? Like what... Mm -hmm. All the above. I don't know. Like, is there certain times in a well, woman's life that happens? Often say, um, well, when you first become sexually active, that's a time of high risk. And yeah. also during pregnancy, the risk goes up by up to 10%. And then pre-menopause, when your hormones start to change, is also another time of risk. Mm-hmm. Um, and then because of the cycle, but it's not really pinpointed. People say sometimes they get symptoms right before their period or right after or during or around ovulation. So we haven't really seen solid patterns that might explain that yet yeah but it's definitely causing an impact are there laboratories out there researching this stuff like is there a center for urinary tract infection or who's looking into it there's quite a few researchers doing something in this space we work a lot with Loyola University and Alan Wolf at his lab where they do a lot of urinary microbiome research and he was part of the team that discovered the the bladder biome in the first place So we try to collaborate with them a lot. And there's others looking into different aspects like supplements and UTI vaccines, which our community Uh, are very interested in because that offers a lot of promise. Tell us more about that, will you? Because that sounds very interesting. There's a couple that are available already, mostly in Europe. It's it's not clear to me whether you can truly access it in the States, Mm. but there's a few that you can take. Uh, Often they're like sublingual, so you put them under your tongue mm-hmm. or some of them I think are injection. I know there's a vaginal pessary type and they work 
in the, the way that it kind of introduces the inactive bacteria to the body so your body has a response. But there's other mechanisms being studied and we're hoping that one of the trials for those starts this year because we have a lot of interest from our community to join the trial and that one will be actually delivered directly into the bladder via a catheter so it will be in the location that it's needed and it triggers a different kind of response from the body and the mice the mouse studies have been very promising so far so we're kind of all just waiting to see what happens with that one fingers crossed well it sounds to me like you know a vaccine works when it's against a foreign body that's not natural for us and so like um, bv infection in the vagina or yeast infection in vagina you may not have a vaccine because it's it's just what you currently have is out of balance but it sounds like for utis the jury's out maybe it's an imbalance but maybe for this vaccine it really is like bacteria that's not supposed to be in there yeah so they do they do class some organisms as uropathogens so they're known to almost always cause symptoms Mm -hmm. and that's helpful that's what these vaccines are usually targeting and that's what the research starts with too so that they can understand the mechanism but what we really want is a vaccine where they can then custom make it for the patient or identify what the issue is for that patient, then create the vaccine for that organism or that group of organisms and introduce that to the patient because they're very limited so far. And a lot of people won't respond partly because it's not the organism that's giving them the problem. Mm. So let's do some myth busting real fast. So uh, peeing after sex, true or false that it's important for urinary health? I would say on the whole, it seems true. And most clinicians would support that. And a lot of people in our community say if they don't, they are certain to get a UTI. Ah, Okay. So pee after sex, y'all. Does that include like masturbation or is that only with another partner? Any kind of sexual activity. If you're using toys or hands or anything, everything can be touched by bacteria and anything, even the bacteria on your skin in your genital area, if you push that into your urethra where it isn't supposed to be, it could cause a problem. So anything at all in that area counts. Well, that leads me to my next one, wiping from front to back or back to front. So for those listeners who don't know what the hell we're talking about, because I always like to break down, these are like the little secret things women talk to each other. Or our, All I know is my mother told me, wipe from front to back, and I never questioned it, right? So is that, does it have, is that UTI essentially? Is it, and is it real? Like if I it's, wipe it's from real. my the, anus the forward? Theory, yeah, exactly. The theory is that anything that's coming out of the anus should not get towards the vagina or the urethra. So you should wipe towards it and like away from the urethra. Otherwise you're just trying to make it worse for yourself, really. Yeah. You're cross-contaminating mm-hmm. two air er- two areas that shouldn't be communicating with one another um uh cranberry juice true juice itself has no evidence to support its use there's a few things within cranberries that are being studied and and kind of have more promise so demonose is kind of one of the things that is in cranberry though when you see a demonose product on the market it's not made from cranberry usually comes from a much more available source and then there's proanthocytins, which is another aspect of cranberry that is being kind of extracted and used in supplements. And that is also showing promise. But cranberries as the whole fruit 
fairly pointless according to the research. Wow. Is that so crazy? But some people still swear by it, so you never know. Yep. I mean, I we just interviewed the president of uh, the American Bone Health Association, mm-hmm. and I was like, so, milk. I grew up <laughs> with milk mustaches by athletes in all of my gymnasiums growing up, you know? And I, I always wonder, like, now I'm thinking about cranberries, like, did the cranberry industry, like... I don't know, like I mean, utilize yes. this as something to promote themselves, you know? Ocean spray paid for one of the main studies <gasps> on cranberry juice. So the answer is yes. <laughs> yes, the answer is yes, y'all. Follow the money. Man, <laughs> follow the money, you'll be like the world just is crazy. Last mm-hmm. last myth buster I have. I've also mm-hmm. been told to put yogurt on a tampon. Um, or probiotics or yogurt in that. I mean, it's more so, I guess, for vaginal health, but we shouldn't be Mm. putting any yogurt down there, right? Yeah, I've heard so many different uh, approaches (laughs) to this. I like the the response of our scientific advisor who said, if you eat it as food, bacteria might eat it as food too, so don't put it in your vagina. And that seems like a logical approach to me. Yeah, yeah, that makes sense. It makes sense. Um, what are the long-term consequences of having a chronic UTI? Well, there's the burden side of things that I mentioned before. So the impact on quality of life and there's no stats around how long it takes to find someone that can actually help you with this. But a lot of people in our community are still seeking better care after years or decades. And some of them, like you mentioned, have had this problem since they were born or Mm -hmm. since they were children and 40 years later are still trying to get someone to take them seriously So that's a big issue. But there's also a risk of an untreated UTI moving to a kidney infection, which can lead to sepsis, which can lead to death. So that's a pretty serious consequence. Mm -hmm. And there's other complications that could result from long-term antibiotic use. So gut health and vaginal health could be impacted, and so could immune system health. So people that are in this situation are dealing with side effects, not just from the actual illness, but from the potential treatment for the illness as well. So it definitely is something that should be taken seriously. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, because whenever I get on a, uh antibiotic, I'm always so worried about a yeast infection. And so if these mm-hmm. women are struggling with, you know, burning when it pees and they take antibiotic and now they have chronic yeah. burning because of a yeast infection, like it's never ending. Yeah. It's a huge problem with our community for that back and forth to happen. I had the same issue, so I had to address it from every aspect of health when I was trying to recover because one angle or one treatment was just not going to work. Um, what do you think about like the future of UTIs in urinary health? Like, What do we need? Do we need... I feel I feel like I have some ideas based on this conversation so far. But what is you have a you have a magic genie bottle? What do you wish for urinary health? Well, we first need to understand more about the urinary microbiome in order to make progress in every aspect of this. But we need better testing. We need testing that actually is effective for this. It tells us what the problem is and how to treat it. And at the moment, that just doesn't exist. There are more mm. sensitive types of testing, but they show up so many organisms that clinicians don't know what to treat and what to leave. So that whole space needs vast improvement. And also the guidelines need to be updated. There've been, there've been patients lobbying for changes to those guidelines for years. And some of them literally have a page that says placeholder for recurrent UTI guidelines. And there isn't anything there. And it's, 
It just means that how are clinicians supposed to treat patients or even know how to diagnose this if the guidelines don't exist. So yeah. it needs to go right back to that and medical education. Mm-hmm. Do you think that if, and I mean, just on your gut feeling leading this company, like if this was disproportionately affecting males, do you think we'd have more solutions? I do. I don't know that we would have gotten to the point we're at where so many people have this chronic problem. And it's a common theme that we have from our community that they feel that this wouldn't be the case if it was more prominent in males. And Mm. we have done some qualitative interviews with males. We do a lot of patient interviews for our org and maybe 3% of our community are males with this problem. Mm -hmm. And we have spoken to some of them and they just describe their experience so differently to the women that we, like I've asked questions about what the emotional impact has been and they've kind of not understood the question because they haven't been dismissed. They have the problem and that's emotional, but they haven't had the problem of not being taken seriously. So that kind of indicates that this wouldn't be such a large scale problem. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Do we have um, uh, an issue yet with drug resistant um, infections? It's the second most common reason that antibiotics are prescribed. And we've been hearing from a lot of people. We ran a survey recently on this topic, actually, and about 25% of the respondents said they'd been told there was limited or no options available for their treatment. And that's a, a big indication that antibiotic resistance is a huge deal in this community. And because that can mean that it can lead to kidney infection or sepsis, it's a, a real fear of death and we've heard from people that have been told they've got a 50 50 chance of getting through this because doctors don't know what to do about it there are no more options that's also why vaccines become important or things like yes. phage therapy or other non-antibiotic approaches what is phage therapy so a bacteriophage is a tiny little virus that feeds on bacteria basically and every bacteria has a phage so a phage only targets one type of bacteria and you can develop a phage for a particular infection or for a particular organism but it's been around for a long time 100 years or so but because it's an individualized treatment it's not something the fda can approve Mm. for broader sale and it's not really available in the u.s unless you're part of a trial but you can go to some countries in the world access this kind of treatment you might have seen it in sometimes there'll be a newspaper article about someone who had a a respiratory infection that couldn't be treated and they found a phage in a lake where sewage is and they managed to isolate it and treat this person with that phage it's kind of futuristic yeah sci-fi kind of stuff well i'm sure we thought that penicillin was sci-fi at one point right and (laughs) so one day one day we're gonna look back and be like wait why were we killing all the bacteria in our bodies just to hurt the ones that were in our urethra like that sounds crazy i think we're right on the brink of feeling that way already yeah totally um you're such a worldly woman do you have a, a sense of what country or culture is like maybe a leader in this, like taking it more seriously, putting more resources toward it, or is it even playing field? It, I mean, we get feedback from like 70 to 80 countries so far. I think we've had like quiz responses and feedback from, and it's pretty much the same problem. Mm-hmm. There are like small movements happening in the UK. There's been some updates on the NHS website just in the last week to 
to note that testing is flawed and that people should be, be diagnosed based on symptoms, which is a big deal, even though it's like one sentence that acknowledges the problem. Yeah. So there's a, a bit happening in the UK and a handful of clinicians in the US and research happening, but there isn't a country where you could go and get superior treatment, really. Yeah. Talk to us about UTI and pregnancy. When you're pregnant, are you, you're more like likely to have it? Can you take the antibiotics while you're pregnant? Talk to us about that experience. I think that's, I mean, it's a huge topic for our community. We often hear from people with questions around this, but it starts pre-pregnancy because there's a couple of reasons that recurrent UTI could impact your ability to conceive. Oh. And one is that the presence of certain bacteria might have a negative effect on that, but mm. more research is needed in that space. That's kind of my favorite thing to say, more research is needed. <laughs> but also the problem that comes up a lot is how can I have, how can I conceive if I can't have sex? Because every time I have sex, I get a UTI or sex oh. is too painful. It's too traumatic. It's too, it causes too much anxiety. Yeah. How am I supposed to conceive? And mm. that, that in itself is a gigantic issue and it means that it can be really helpful to work with a chronic UTI specialist from the time that you want to conceive not just once you get pregnant mm -hmm. but then when we do get to pregnancy I think I mentioned earlier that the risk of UTI increases by up to 10 percent and the the reason that they take UTI so seriously during pregnancy is because untreated UTI has been linked to preterm delivery and low birth like low birth weight, preeclampsia, some birth defects and other complications, which means testing throughout pregnancy is always recommended. And if any bacteria shows up in the urine, even if you don't have symptoms, treatment is always prescribed. So you'll often be given antibiotics because something shows up in your urine, even if you feel fine. And it's until we know more about the urinary microbiome, it's always safest to go with that treatment and to err on the side of caution. Mm. Well, then what do you think about healthcare specifically for maternal health kind of moving and staying virtual because we realized maybe women don't have to come into the office physically mm -hmm. every many weeks or whatever. Do you think that we'll be missing some of these UTIs if women are doing virtual care? It's possible given the increased risk and how often, I mean, I think the delivery to pee sample at every appointment is probably quite common and that's probably how a lot of this gets picked up. Yeah. And so that will definitely be missed. And so for women that have symptoms, then they can be prescribed something without a test. Mm -hmm. But if they don't have symptoms, they'll never find out. So it could be a risk. Interesting. All the things we got to consider when we're like mm -hmm. innovation, new ways of delivering yeah. care. It's like, have we thought everything through? Have we? Yeah. <laughs> um, we definitely haven't, but hopefully we'll figure it out. No, sooner rather than later. Yeah. Um, can you tell our listeners a little bit more about your organization in terms of what resources they can access? How can they get involved? Yeah, so we have our website, which has a lot of educational articles for patients. But we also last year launched a YouTube channel where we interview experts in the space. So we have scientists and clinicians and sometimes we do patient stories. And um, so that's a good way to kind of learn more about very specific topics like UTI vaccines or particular treatment approaches. We also have clinicians watching those. So a lot of people have said they've been able to get better treatment because their clinician, they've been able to show their clinician a uh -huh. video by another clinician. And that's important because 
they don't want to take information from our website and just listen to that. It needs to be from someone with clinician credibility. Mm-hmm. And so we have that and we have our Instagram account where we do um, ask me anything with experts. So we collect questions and then each week we choose one to answer, which is really good too, because it gives patients a chance to get something particular answered. And soon, hopefully by the time this episode is, we'll have a new resource that we've been working on for the last year, which is a, a white paper that we've written with our advisors, particularly around the problems with testing and what that means for patients, but it is for clinicians. So patients can download this from our website, take it with them to their appointment, it's fully scientifically referenced, and it is very serious, and hopefully that will help get more practitioners on board. Mm. Wow, you are doing the hard work. You are doing really, really important, fantastic work. You're you're doing what I hear and you know think is what you wanted when you were experiencing this. Mm-hmm. Like resources, information, get me help <laughs> because yeah. and help me not feel alone, right? I'm sure a lot of women yeah. feel alone in this or they think like, oh, women other women must have this and they're not complaining or they don't have this. Is that some sentiments mm-hmm. that you hear from people? Yeah, we, we have so many, we get thousands of emails every month. A lot mm. of the resources we share is by email. And one of the most common messages we receive is until I found your site, I felt like I was alone. Aww. And that's one of our main messages. You yeah. are not alone. No matter how weird you think your experience is, someone else has had the same one. And we're all trying to move forward to a place where everybody can get better care. Absolutely. Well, we have two last questions that our listeners Mm -hmm. really love. The first one is if someone wanted to start a femtech company, what's an area in women's health and wellness that you think still needs innovating? I'm tempted to say all of them, but (laughs) from our perspective, the diagnostic space is like sorely needing innovation in so many areas of women's health, the delay to diagnosis is huge. Like endometriosis is one that comes up a lot. And urinary tract infection too. And so diagnostics, if you can get on board and help us out with that, that would be excellent. I love that idea. In fact, I am, uh, you know, I'm an investor and the the companies that excite me the most are diagnostics because I know diagnostics and like changes in how we do things procedure wise. Like how do we cross Mm -hmm. the cervical boundary without like just forking it open with these tongs that we have, right? Like, come on, it's 2022. We get, we're using tongs in the, you know, like, yeah, very, so that's what gets me the most excited. I love you digital health apps. I love you consumer product goods. You know, I love all y'all, but yeah, diagnostics is like absolute. Cause if we can't prove that something's wrong, all the other stuff doesn't matter, right? Exactly. Yeah. And patients don't get diagnosed, they don't get treated, and they just remain in this cycle. So we definitely need to start there. Absolutely. I totally agree. And our last question is, what do you think the femtech industry as a whole needs the most right now in order to be successful? I think you might agree that funding is required and not just for like femme founders that have proven that they can scale. It needs to be at every stage of development because so much in this space of biotech and femtech takes so much money to implement and validate. And you cannot establish a company like that with seed funding. So we need input or Mm -hmm. the belief from traditional investors that femtech is a necessity and that 50% of the global population is a significant audience. Yeah. I'm going to ask you uh, a question I've been like asking my other femtech leader friends about. 
you know, um, the pandemic happened and all of a sudden telemedicine widely accepted. Like Teladoc mm-hmm. has been around forever. Like virtual mm-hmm. medicine has actually been around forever, but we now are all like on board with it. Right. So like terrible thing happens. We, we shifted, adapted. Now we accept mm-hmm. this is a new reality. Uh, right now with what's going on in Ukraine and Russia, everyone's now like, okay, electric cars, clean energy. We got to get mm-hmm. this going. Like, how do we do that? You know? Um, I'm wondering, what do you think, this should be like my new like question I ask at the end of things, what may, like major world event do you think needs to happen for people to get on board and like everyone's on the same boat that women's health is a priority and needs our funding, our attention, our resources, our, you know, talking dialogue, like, can you even fathom what the event would be? A global infertility crisis. I thought so too. I thought so too. Yeah. Because it has to impact other people, right? Not just women. Otherwise, uh, nobody will care. That's right. That's what I thought too. I was like some major (laughs) infertility issue. Um, Yeah. Mm -hmm. But uh, I've been asking some other people about that too. And it's been interesting to hear the answers and um, you know, and I, and I, I never want to wish anything bad, but it's been interesting the last few years seeing major world events happen and like mm-hmm. progress does, you know, there's silver linings and where, what kind of event can we have that like we can get some, uh, attention and, and we have attention. We need resources when we don't need yeah. mentoring. Don't mentor us. We don't need your mentoring. <laughs> we need your money and we need resources. Yes. Yes. I agree with that completely. <laughs> Melissa, thank you for all you do for women's health. This is incredible. Um, Thank you so much for your time today. Yeah, thanks for having us. It was a great show. Thank you for listening to my interview with Melissa Kramer, the CEO and founder of Live UTI Free. Learn more and access the patient guide and take to your doctor documents at liveutifree.com. Alrighty, Femme fans, be sure to give the show a five-star review and share it with a friend. Join our virtual community at femtechfocus.org and join the thousands of other Femtech founders, investors, and mentors advising and advancing women's health. While in the virtual community, sign up for a Fem Pro membership, only $15 a month, and get access to assets like our Femtech company database and a self-guided Femtech accelerator. Keep an eye out for our monthly Femtech Book Club, which happens the last Wednesday of every month, and subscribe to our newsletter. Last but not least, please consider setting up a recurring donation to Femtech Focus. We are a 501c3 nonprofit and rely on your donations to operate. Okay, Fem fans, until next time, keep innovating because improving women's health and wellness improves everyone's health and wellness. <laughs>